Chapter 13. No Time for Girls. Mrs. Collis, who claimed her son, had no time for girls. No time for football. He's studying to be a doctor. She was wrong. We all had time for girls. <laughs> the truth was, no girls had any time for us. Cindy Lauper was lying. You get it? Yeah, girls just don't want to have fun. The best four or five A players knew the ways. Hold on. Hold on. She wasn't lying. Maybe girls did want to have fun, but you guys weren't fun. Yeah, or we stunk, or we were uh, conversationally incapable. Yeah, I mean, teenage boys. Or we were assholes. I don't reckon assholes are just incapable of communicating. So And scared. there was one guy that could hold a conversation with girls, and the girls flocked to him. Yep. He didn't have any trouble talking about whatever. Oh, we looked on that boy with envy. Yep. And no, it wasn't even hatred. It was envy. It was like, what's he got that we haven't? Especially if he was handsome as well. How does he do well. that? If he was obviously good looking. How does he talk to them? Why do well, they like him? Yeah. Well, the next, uh, the next line is uh, pertinent. The best four or five A-side players also knew the ways of women. Such is the fickle hand of fate. Not content to play better than their pals, they also managed to get the girls. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us had absolutely no idea what to say, what to do, where, when, how, or to whom. I, for one, was definitely interested, despite my appalling sexual ignorance. I became aroused when checking out Charlie's Angels, and I desperately wanted to kiss Sheridan Jobbins, the dark-haired one with the big boobs on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. I was an Edith Bliss boy. Well, she was also gorgeous. Also Angela Caterns. Oh, yeah. Who I met later on in life at the ABC and I told her about my wanton desires as a young adolescent for her on uh, Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Ah. On my wall was a full-colour Big M Girl calendar. Did you have the Big M Girl calendar, Lawrence? Didn't have the Big M Girl calendars, but uh, I remember the ad. Milk will never be the same now that Big M's here. There's big a big chocolate M. Big strawberry M. Big M. Yeah, and what what was happening in that video, do you recall? In that yes, I do. In, in the ad. Classic 70s uh, slash 80s advertising. It was uh, bikini-clad women who, you know, obviously were models, all looked hot. They'd be coming out of the surf, so they were wet. Uh, they'd reach into an esky pull out a 600 mil slash one pint carton of Big M. They'd open it and drink so enthusiastically that the milk wouldn't all go in their mouths. It would pour down their chin and over their ample breasts and cleavage. And it was the same, regardless of the flavour, each Big M girl would be spilling this uh, dairy confection over themselves. I, in fact, went out with a Big M girl. Fuck uh, off. You did not. Yes, I did. Milk, milk, lemonade, round the corner chocolates, mate. Now, no, she was iced coffee, uh, <laughs> not chocolate. I did. Her name. They were the most sought after humans, male, female, whatever you, whatever your preference. Not that we, you know, knew what even a preference was. You just had instinct or whatever, bi- biologically. I'm, so when I tell was at, me when I was at drama school, uh, Michelle McClatchy and I went out together for quite a while. I think nigh on a year. Lucky Maybe Michelle. I'm going to back to the last line of the last paragraph. On my wall was a full-colour Big M Girl calendar. 
Still, my interest was fleeting. Unless a girl could give me a mint-conditioned Ali DeWald, my concentration would probably have wandered anyway. Besides, Simon, my brother, had started seeing a woman and was gradually paying me less attention than I was used to from him. I could tell that girls were trouble, and so I stuck to footy training. Not that I had an option. Well, there was Samantha Donnelly, the daughter of the bloke who'd been on the Don Lane show. She was my next-door neighbour, my age, and went to my school, Pinewood Primary. With her long golden hair, fresh face, and melting chocolate way of moving, Samantha looked forever like a mermaid in the sunshine. We played together almost every day as kids and got along fine as teenagers, but so distracted was I by the saints that I never once attempted or even thought about anything untowards, either before or after I knew better. She was kind of like my sister, I suppose. There was no showing of mine and I'll show you yours, no doctors and nurses, no spinning of bottles. I wasn't shy or scared of her in any way. And whether she'd have been willing for any adventures was beside the point. It simply didn't enter my mind. As an adult, this is a memory I still struggle to comprehend. Had St Kilda been winning premierships at that stage, my preoccupation with them might make sense in hindsight. And yet the Saints were shit and still I couldn't get distracted. As Mark, I, th- I think that that is a, a woman's tale of a lot of men who they're attracted to. The level of distraction or obsession or immersion in sport. It's like, I like this guy, but he doesn't even know I exist when the footy's on. Well, I don't and think that's... she liked me either. I was probably a brother to her. But still, it's not like there wasn't. But still, you know... my point being is that when it comes to sport, men are often so distracted that they there, it's tunnel vision. Well, maybe that's the purpose that it serves in society because women then get, don't get hassled or, you know, approached by boys who just aren't ready yet for any kind of, yeah. you know. Beyond hassling or approach or unwanted advances, women also want to be noticed by men. If they, if, if they, if they, if they prefer men, yeah, of course. But yeah. uh, they also don't want idiots wasting no, their time, don't. no matter what age There's, they are. There's a lot of them. You've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your Prince Charming. Yep. You're someone's Prince Charming, aren't you? Lou, I am. Lou's Prince That's Charming. That's very nice. I am someone's Prince Charming. It's a very nice thing to have in your life. As my brother Mark grew older, I made a tidy profit from his Sunday morning hangovers by sneaking into his room to collect the coins that scattered across the floor when his hastily discarded Dax hit the deck. I moved in a slow, stilted motion as oh, if illuminated yes. by a strobe light praying that he wouldn't wake up. Not until many years afterwards when I discovered alcohol myself did I realise a full-scale marching band wouldn't have woken him after 17 Scotch and Cokes the night before. So you're in there alleviating him of his burden of coins. Well, yeah, because, you know, I needed money for footy cards and there's only so many times you can do the dishes. And I had an addiction I needed to adhere to, you know. Yes, you did. Um, As for my fear of him missing the money, now that I know how hard it is to account for anything up to 150 bucks after a serious session on the source, I feel a fool for thinking that he might have noticed five bucks fifty in loose change. Remember that thing where you would discard your dax after a big night drinking or something, and you wake up in the morning and it was almost like a person had melted because the 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 dax was sort of the dax was sort of in a standing position up to kind of like the shin level. I know exactly what you're talking about. Is that about. because none of us washed our jeans? Yeah. Simon and I slept in bunk beds until long after he was 18. Our original single beds had been arranged one atop the other to create more floor space in our room. When Mark left home it created an available room but Simon still chose to remain with me. He was used to the company. When I was about 14, he began working. Pay nights on Thursdays, he was usually pissed. I'd wake up around 2 o'clock each Friday morning 
thinking a burglar was bursting through our bedroom window, only to recognise Simon's head coming through the curtains. Shh, <laughs> shh, shh, he'd say, struggling to find his lips with his finger and nearly putting his eye out instead. I knew Simon and I were growing apart when he began to fart louder and longer than he had before. He had his own money now, and so his improved prowess in this field may have been due to a different diet right, that he had control of, i.e. beer and burgers. Whatever, I could no longer compete. His farts were hilarious. Mine weren't even able to compete. He was now in dad's league in that department. On Saturdays, Simon would hurry home after the game so he could get ready to go out with his girlfriend. I'd be left watching the replay alone as he rushed off a wash and his brute splash on aftershave. I Suddenly, having two older brothers that left on a Saturday night to go out. But I loved being at home with my parents, right. watching Parkinson or Hill Street Blues. Or uh, Dave Allen. Yeah. With his missing finger and cigar. Suddenly, Simon was smitten. Lisa says she knew he'd be her husband the second she set eyes on him when he served her in Springvale Post Office. Now, there's a subtitle. And the subtitle is? The Streaker. Say the, again, sorry. The Streaker. Oh! The first nude lady I actually saw in the flesh was stripper-turned-streaker Helen Domenico, who strutted her stuff at the first grand final I ever attended. It was 1982, Carlton versus Richmond. I cried as Slim Dusty sung the national anthem. I love to have a beer with Duncan. I love to have a beer with Duncan. We drink in moderation. And we never, ever, ever get rolling. I laughed when I saw the nude lady, and I don't know why in either instance. Midway through the third quarter, Carlton's ninth goal put them a point in front. And as the two teams waited for the ball to be brought back to the centre for the bounce by the umpire, the crowd erupted. Wondering what was up, <laughs> wondering what was up, I followed the sea of pointing fingers and found my eyes f- falling to rest on what I would have assumed to be an apparition had everyone else not obviously seen the same thing as me. A football game and a nude lady. I could not connect the two concepts. Beyond the breasts, it was her dark triangle of pubic hair that had me mesmerised. It seemed strange that I should be allowed to look. I thought I was going to get in trouble somehow at any moment. Seeing the same sight in any other circumstance would have constituted misbehaviour on my behalf. It, It felt naughty, but nice. Everyone was excited, except... Wayne Johnson, the Carlton vice-captain. Someone had to make a, a move, but I know blokes who would have questioned his methods when he shoved her out of the centre square. Point deficit at half-time. Carlton have added two goals, two, while two points have run on the board. To the oh, goal. female streaker! <laughs> Goodness me! Oh, God. I'll go along with that. <laughs> well, that's enough to turn you off your football. Look at James, he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> I'm speechless. Oh, Johnson. I wouldn't like to uh, what his wife would have to say about that. Well, she certainly uh, disrupted everything here at the moment after Carlton have hit the front by a point. And that's to make... Uh, it's a tip of make any side lose their uh, concentration, Bob, wouldn't they? I wonder if I can have a word to our director, Ralph Potter. Could we see that in the replay, Al? The crowd's still going. The crowd no one seems to be watching the match. Standing room. The first grand final had me hooked. Crystal clear in my mind is the sight of Carlton players swapping jumpers with their vanquished opponents after the siren, wearing them like scalps. Running a lap of honour, pursued by unfit photographers as a theme song blasted out of the sound system. 
passing the Premiership Cup amongst themselves, popping champagne corks. From that moment on, the game took on a whole new meaning for me. Yeah, I used to love the tradition of swapping jumpers. They don't do it now because it's not good for the corporate sponsors. The sponsor wants to be seen on the jumper of each and every one of those heroes. Yeah. But once upon a time, you would take the jumper, like you say, a scalp. Well, also, it's like we have lowered your colours and I'm prepared to wear your jumper to show you. <laughs> Double ruthlessness, isn't it? You've beaten them, it. You've beaten them and then kicked them while they're down. I, th- I think it was also a sign of respect. Like you and yeah. I gave our best against each other. Let's keep each yeah, other's exchange jumpers. jumper as a memory of that, of that battle. But um, St Kilda only won one premiership ever in 1966 by one solitary point. Right? And our captain in all the photographs is wearing a Collingwood jumper as he holds yes. up the premiership cup. Daryl Baldock, correct? Could they rub the pain and the misery in our faces more? I reckon that is true victory. I don't think that you should be disconsolate about that at all. Okay. Standing room tickets were self-explanatory and cost $11 at the time. Either you arrived early or it was a waste of time. An hour-long wait at the bar meant blokes took as many cans as they could carry back to their vantage point. Rather than putting their hard-won position in jeopardy by taking a toilet trip, most men then preferred to piss into one of the cans they'd just emptied. Drinking steadily throughout the afternoon, they'd pick up successive tinnies from the selection around their feet, testing the temperature with their fingertips until they came across a coldie. That's a mistake you don't make twice. As the afternoon wore on, the cans warmed up and such precautions were often neglected, resulting in the occasional eruption of spluttering and swearing simultaneously. Simon and I displayed a smidgen of sophistication. Still on the soft drink, we used a four-litre easy-goer of Mellow Yellow as our personal place to pee. Remember Mellow Yellow was a brief, I do. briefly defeated I... competitor to Solo. Yeah, a form of Solo. Bitter lemon, but never lasted. Look out, mouth. Watch out, hips. I'm bringing the world's fastest soft drink to my lips. Mellow Yellow makes you feel so good, so fast. Mouth, watch out first. This mellow yellow's as good as the first. The urine at football matches was just insane. I used to go to Windy Hill and stand in the outer in what they called the cow shed. And basically it was, you know, a roof, two sides and the back of a shed. And on a wet day would be crammed with people chain smoking, very much an Essendon kind of area. And if the rain was coming down too hard, men wouldn't bother leaving the cow shed to go to the toilet. They'd just go to the back of it. Against the wall. And pee on the wall. And in the end, it just had this heavy uric acid smell of beer, man and cigarette. And I can still smell it. And it far from disgusts me. It warms the cockles of my heart. At the time or now? Now. I can also smell fried food in there. But just the <laughs> Chico just, rolls, just the atmosphere of belonging, and if Essendon won, or was winning, just the fact that you're a part of it, it didn't matter how deeply degraded the the shed was. It was definitely a form of community and a, an ability as a young person to mix with adults that weren't your teachers or your parents or your mates' no. parents. It was like, you know, really being allowed to be a part of society. I remember being, as a child, going to Collingwood versus Essendon at VFL Park 
And it was my first game of football that I'd ever been to. And Essendon won. And there was a man in front of us. No, a man behind me. I had my Essendon beanie on. And every time we kicked a goal, especially in the last quarter, he'd pull the beanie off and swing it around. And, like, talk about a sense of belonging (laughs) for a man to use your beanie as his item of celebration. Strikes me as a bit strange, Lawrence. Don't, you know, blokes would just out of the blue hug you or put their arm around you. It's like, go, Bombers! Yeah, no, the, the, that expression the, of joy. The That's inclusion great. of an adult existence was incredible. Yeah. And also, like, your parents weren't there, you know. Not that they needed to well, be. Well, my parent, parents were there for this one because I was six. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't unsupervised. Anyway. Back if to some bloke chat. was standing behind my daughter, I suppose that's a male-female thing, and kept on taking her beanie off and waving it in the air every time the goal was kicked. I reckon I'd say stop doing that. Yeah. No, I I think it was you know it was beautifully inclusive. Was I have d- no, I put no question mark against it. I um, didn't feel in danger then, and I don't now. Anyway, back to the book, muscles. Chapter fourteen: The Car Chase. <laughs> Elliot Vadecki looked a lot like Elvis Presley, early Vegas version. Able to take big grabs with one bite, he played full forward for the Notting Hill Bees and kicked like David Cloak, the then Richmond centre-half forward, with both arms held out, stiff in front of him, holding the ball at its upper end, leaning back as he dropped it onto his boot. It was the same style later adopted by Sydney's Warwick Kappa. We could all impersonate David Cloak when we were having kick to kick at school, but <laughs> Elliot didn't have to. His bedroom smelt like mouse shit. He had a dozen of the dirty little blighters all fighting for space to run around on the minuscule Ferris wheel thing that they seemed to enjoy. Elliot was strange in that he barracked for North Melbourne and Michael Roach. That's right, as I said it. Both featured on his duffel coat. He had blue and white stuff sewn all over his duffel coat, but with a yellow number eight ironed on the back, as worn by Richmond's full forward. Two or three years earlier, we went to Waverley Park together to watch North Melbourne play Richmond. Elliot was in heaven. After the game, as we ran onto the ground to kick the Sharon, the one I'd won from Inside Football magazine, because I answered the 50 footy questions first. Uh, (laughs) How dare you? I emphasised that. You had a bloody blessed existence, didn't you? You had a Malvern Star chopper bike. No, when when I was 12, we weren't allowed to have our first bike till we were 12. So, yes, I got a great bike, but, you know, it's six years after everybody else. Half a lifespan later, thanks. Anyway, says you about an envious existence, Mr. Big M Girl Boyfriend. Right. (laughs) I emphasised to Elliot the importance of watching my prize wherever it went when we kicked the ball on the ground after the game. And although the sky was littered with flying footies, the distinct yellow glow of my brand new night game, Sharon, was rare in the air and easy to trace. It was hard to come by and was an obvious target for thieves. It had been missing only a moment when I saw two grown blokes sprinting up the aisle steps between the seats, carrying my most treasured possession. I yelled out to Elliot, and we took off after them. They were a long way in front, but I was moving faster than I had before. Although they were twice my size and must have been 18 at least, I was too furious to be frightened. I saw them going down the steel staircase at the back of the grandstand, opposite, oh, yeah. opposite the main scoreboard, but by the time I got to ground level, they were about half a mile away, it seemed to me, running through the half-deserted car park towards the man-made lake near the fenced-off Monash Freeway. Struggling to see through tears, I gave up. Suddenly, I had an idea. I was close to the police locker rooms where Dad had taken me once before. 
Bursting in, I sputtered, spluttered something about two big boys nicking my brand new football. A couple of cops pulled on their pants halfway through getting undressed and changed into their civvies and asked me for directions as we drove off in the divvy van, siren sounding, lights on. The robbers were halfway over the freeway fence when they realised they'd been rumbled. Fortunately for me, they chucked the footy in our direction, oh. landed on the other side and fled. I returned triumphant to the waiting Elliot, who hadn't kept up and may still be wondering why I managed to retrieve the football. That was not uncommon football thievery. Very similar thing happened to me at Princess Park with a brand new footy that I got for my birthday. Big boys waiting around. It gets kicked, you know, uh, off the side of the boot and boom, they're away with it. And uh, Mr. Shannon gave chase and brought the footy back. Brilliant. As, as my nana said, they should be strung up. Imagine that. The oath, Nan. Imagine being strung up for nicking another kid's footy. Well, you should be. Bring, gonna... bring back the lash. Yes. <laughs> Part of Dad's occasional Saturday shift at Waverley Park involved escorting the coaches to and from their box at the breaks, which gave Dad access to all areas. He often remarked upon the filthy language used during team pep talks by the coaches, claiming there was no need for grown men to speak that way. Good on him. <laughs> You are a I'll tell you why. You've come down here, not concentrated. The ball goes out towards the Carlton small man. You stay back with your man. You could have got to the Carlton small man, but I know I'm going to protect myself. I don't mind a bloke going bad, Daryl, but to me, you're bloody not switched on properly. Now, you get over and try and mind the bloody forward pocket, OK? Afterwards, though, when I was waiting for him to change into his civvies, the swearing I would hear coming from him and his fellow workmates was even more shocking, especially considering the status they held in society. I thought cops were supposed to set an example, Lawrence. When not working at Waverley Park, Dad joined Mum most matches in the members' stand, fully equipped with thermos and bulky blankets. Choosing which team to support at the beginning of each game, because they'd just go there week after week, no matter who was on, Mum would start an argument with someone while Dad was out of his seat and then expect him to finish it when he came back. Yep. The SCG, known as the Sydney Cricket Ground, in long form. When South Melbourne first relocated... Sorry, when the South Melbourne football team first relocated to Sydney... It seemed that their captain, Barry Round, was chaired off the ground after the game almost every week, even if they'd lost. I wondered whether Barry had the luxury written into his contract as some players were reluctant about uprooting their lives from Melbourne to Sydney and the league must have been desperate to ensure that the stars of that side made the transition. The Swans had all the games at their new home televised on Sunday afternoons from the start. We didn't support them, but there was no other game on the tally that day, so we'd watch them all. The transformation from South Melbourne to the Sydney Swans had been set in motion, but it would take some time to fully take effect. The team that ran onto the SCG for our first home game in 1982 was under Captain Barry Round and new coach Ricky Quaid. Both had credentials. Round was reigning Brownlow medalist, and Quaid would provide some 35 years of service to the club. Colin Marshall was a lifelong Swan supporter and probably the first child in Australia to have a skinhead by choice, or a bonehead, as we used to refer to it at the time. He was my friend from Pinewood Primary School, and he took offence at my continual anti-Barry Round remarks, especially when I delivered them on his doorstep. One day I rang his bell and greeted him with the words, Barry Round is shit. I knew, 
I knew it would stir him up, but I didn't expect a smack in the eye for my efforts. <laughs> we then wrestled on his front lawn for about 15 minutes, fighting furiously. There was blood spilt, in fact, until Marsha's mum came out and dragged him inside by the ear, telling me I'd better go home at once. <laughs> Marsh had got me one in the mouth as he moved away. The taste of my own blood triggered my temper. His old man was a plumber, so there was plenty of pipes lying about the place, and I'd picked one up and began inviting my friend <laughs> to come and get it, shouting towards the shut front door, <laughs> swishing the pipe around and over my head like Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber. I totally lost the plot by this point and it was only his dad's sudden presence on the front porch which saw me immediately settle down. He didn't need to say a word. I'd officially taken things too far. But two days later, Marshall and I were mates again as usual. Wow. How about you come and get a bit of this? So you're out the front of his place swinging a pipe around like a maniac. Like I, I must have had too many. You're red- actually quite a peace-loving man now. Well, I think I, I think I was back then, but I must have had too many redskins I, in a row. I, I've known you in to be a hothead at times, where you've flown off the handle at people. When you know, name, a, name an occasion, Mister Mister pulls over on the way back from Albury for a fist fight when we're sober in the middle of the day. No, that was you who demanded that I pull over. The it car. was not. We've got different it perspectives. It was, and it was on the way there too, because <laughs> you said, not. "How much is he?" We were going to do a comedy gig. Yeah, and uh, you said, uh, "Anyway, how much are they paying you for this?" And I said, "I don't want to discuss the money." I, I swear, uh, I know you've. I now remember your version of events. I swear that I respect that you never ask anyone what they're getting paid. You wanted to go back to Melbourne, of course. I was going to head on to Aubrey and do the gig. So you like pull over, I reckon, I reckon get out of the car. I reckon you're misremembering or mixing me up with someone else because I've often known myself to either get paid more than someone else or someone else get paid more than me. And I respect the fact that if that's what you negotiated. Mm. So what then, we're describing is a nervous breakdown, obviously. You've had a nervous breakdown. That's exactly what you've had. And you've somehow and, let me off and we're still friends. And I've then when picked you up and we drove back to Melbourne. At no stage was there any physical threat or... I remember uh, that entirely differently. Phone. I thought we were remember talking about... Remember we watched the footy that, that afternoon? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. I remember we were watching the footy. We'd had maybe just Melbourne. We'd had maybe just enough legal beers to continue the drive home after the game. We were halfway back, and and you and you beautifully said to me, "You were tired. Obviously, I was too. We'd had a big couple of days, probably all caused by myself. And I apologise." No, in, in, you don't have to apologise. And we we're watching the game, and it was a close game, and yep. Essendon and... were maybe five points down with about four minutes to go, and you looked at me. And genuinely said, I feel a bit tearful now. You genuinely go, do you think we can win this, Dad? <laughs> and it was so, such a gorgeous, glorious error uh, that I couldn't hang shit on you. What did I say? I think I might have said, we're, yeah, we're going to we win. Can. I think we're we can. win this. Yeah. Did I call you son to try and alert you to what you'd done by do mistake? You, do you- do you think that it was a mistake, or do you think I was doing it for comic effect? No, you were not like, doing it. You were not doing it for comic effect. I think okay. you. I think you'd had a moment of deja vu, and some previous scene that had occurred with you and your dad had arisen and or mixed up and your I'd mind. Projected my father onto you yeah. in that moment and turned to you and said, "Do you think we can win this, Dad?" It was beautiful. <laughs> it was true. It was a moment of absolute truth and glory. And oh, uh, nice. And as as you and I know, we often text each other that sentence apropos of nothing. Uh, it, especially it, when the, if our teams are in a close one, <laughs> that's right. we'll text this to each other. Do you reckon we can win this, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> and what was and tell me this one, Dad? What was the result of that game? The Bombers won. The Bombers won. Yep. 
And so we were joined as father and son forever, <laughs> spiritually. <laughs> this is, we're a tragic man, are we or not? Maybe triumphant. I don't think there's, I don't think there's tragedy about it at all. I think it's a beautiful thing. Fair enough. All right. The, especially when you really took on the fathering role and you said, all right, it's bath time now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go any further along those lines, please. I love to have a beer with Duck and Oh, I love to have a beer with Duck. We drink in moderation and we never, ever, ever get rolling drunk. We drink at the town and country where the atmosphere is great. I love to have a beer with Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. Bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us. Okay, if you haven't given us a rate and review, now's the time. We're counting on you.